1: Oh my God, you guys, that was so awkward. Ugh.
2: What, what, what did she, she get in here? I don't.
1: We should tell people what just happened. So we were here, the four of us, recording the podcast, and Ivanka Trump tried to come in and be the fifth person on the podcast. As and it, she it, just
0: kind of like slipped in.
2: She like, interjects. She had her own microphone. She, had her own she brought microphone. it microphone with her.
1: And every time, like I would say something, she'd go, "Yes, that's right." And every time Ben would say something, like, "Yes," and that makes me. It was just – and the
2: weird hand gestures even when was she
1: wasn't
0: talking. Yeah, and the hair I flip. Didn't,
3: did anyone invite her? Do you think people are going to take this seriously?
0: <laughs> With her on the I show? I mean, it's not implausible. <laughs> the woman no, I mean, just it... shows up all kinds of places. It's, the kind, she of thing isn't sh- it's the kind of
3: like she would do, but.
1: We've had weirder invitations. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the OMG20 edition.
2: I see what you did. They're shame. I like that. I like it.
1: That should be the hashtag for the G20.
2: Do G20s get hashtags?
1: It's unmemorable if they had one this year. <laughs> they clearly did not select this masterpiece. With, with
2: 20 states party, how are you going to get a single <laughs> hashtag?
1: Is there like a committee that decides on the hashtag? <laughs> a plenary session?
0: We'll get to it later, but the unwanted Ivanka hashtag is clearly the G20 hashtag. Oh, that is the only G20 hashtag that matters.
1: Hashtag. Exactly. Uh, we are here in the Matthew Kahn Memorial Studio.
0: Ouch. No, I told him too soon. No, he's not
1: dead. I mean, he didn't kill him. (laughs) Ivanka Trump killed (laughs) him while we were recording. Sent
3: him to first year of law school. It's just as bad. (laughs) You you (laughs) as well have killed
1: him. Uh, With Tamar Kafka, what is Ben? What is and Susan Hennessy? Hi, guys. Hi, Hi, Shane. Shane. On the podcast this week, President Trump takes his show on the road to Osaka, Japan for a meeting of world leaders. A man at the center of the Russia probe has disappeared, and conspiracy theorists have tried to fill the void he left. And a consulting firm is accused of making the intelligence community less effective,
2: less intelligent,
1: less intelligent of <laughs> dumbing down the intelligence. Community. I feel like consulting firms eventually get blamed for pretty much everything. Uh, let's start with the OMG twenty. We uh, already alluded to Ivanka Trump's very awkward moment where she tried to. Um, Take part in what was a sort of sideline conversation with Theresa May, uh, Macron, Christine Lagarde, there was one other person who was there as well. But one of those things was not like the other. And yeah. You've, yeah, you've seen the videos circulating. The
2: of a, 30-something who doesn't actually know anything about anything.
1: Yeah, and sort of every time somebody said something, saying, yeah, uh-huh, and, and that makes me think of, and yeah, it was kind of painful and awkward. And that obviously became a meme of its own. We also had the uh, the very strange, well, not strange, maybe, Trump-Putin kind of love-in, where he sort of laughingly looked at him and said, don't meddle in the elections. John Bolton actually went to Mongolia. I thought that was actually a joke on Twitter as well, that he'd it's been like, sentenced to how far are you
2: willing to go to avoid a photo op with the North Koreans? Right, right, exactly. <laughs> Before
1: Trump's spontaneous appearance in the DMV. DMZ, not the DMV. That would be something else. Uh, <laughs> <laughs>
0: Same
3: difference. Almost as bad.
0: <laughs> this is just the Shane's, like, stand-up hour.
2: So it's with airline, food. It is more <laughs> probable
3: that Trump would show up in the DMZ than, than the that he would show up in the DMV. Yeah, Precisely. Guy's
2: probably never driven himself anywhere in his life.
1: You know, Tammy, so – I think we have here a portrait of an administration that I think as we were talking before the podcast, you were noting has sort of gone down the rabbit hole (laughs) and doesn't seem to know or care how it appears Mm -hmm. to anyone outside. I am fascinated by this and maybe start here with this is that – does the president like? Is he conscious and aware of how the rest of the international community is perceiving this? Whether they be foibles like not knowing what Western liberalism was during a Q and A and thinking that people were referring to Democrats in San Francisco, or you know the, the well, they imagery. were they were Shane. <laughs> of course obviously that
3: famous Democrat in San Francisco, John Locke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: we all know he's up to no good. Um, or is this something that you think that the president? doesn't see it or doesn't care? I mean, how, how should we be interpreting how we assume that he is viewing the international community's reaction to this event, and, and frankly, to many, many others like it?
2: Well, and I would say not only the international community's reaction, but the domestic reaction, the media's reaction. I mean, we're in year three of the Trump presidency, And whereas at the beginning of the Trump presidency, they felt like they had some things to prove, particularly about his relationship with Putin and Russia. And so there were efforts by those around the president to protect him from criticism. He undermined those efforts at Helsinki and other places, but they were trying. Here, it's clear they're not even trying. They're giving the president free reign and the president is using it to ridicule those sources of criticism, those concerns. And so, you know, he could have just not mentioned election security to Putin, right? And he could have triumphantly told the press, that's fake news, or it's a non-issue, go away. No, he actually wanted to rub their faces in it. And so he jokingly wags his finger at Vladimir Putin in front of the cameras and, and says, you know, don't interfere. So, I think that it's deliberate. I think it's calculated. And the message, of course, is I don't care what you think. I think that's a message calculated not to appeal to other members of the international community. His clear view is you need me whether you like me or not. And he's probably right. But I think the message is directed, as with most of his messages, to his political base at home, saying, see, I'm still the one who's willing to buck all the norms, break all the rules, be rude and obnoxious and tell people just the way it is. So that's that's how I saw it. I guess there's one other thing to wonder, not only about the jokiness with Putin, the embrace of Mohammed bin Salman, the decision on the fly to set up a summit with the leader of North Korea, it is that his advisors. Have zero moderating effect. I don't know if they're empowering or enabling this, but they're not holding him back at all.
0: I mean, I do think it's notable that right at the moment that we're seeing this sort of ha-ha, don't meddle in our election, wink-wink, nudge-nudge to Putin, uh, also comes the the news that our former colleague Fiona Hill is leaving the National Security Council. She had been a top advisor on Russia. Um, and so, you know, big questions about um, those are very, very big shoes to fill in terms of substantive expertise. You know, we the, the Ivanka thing became kind of a funny joke, but it's also emblematic of something, which is, governance by nepotism and that this really is an extension of the way he views all foreign policy as a personal relationship. And so Ivanka is a better representative of uh, of Donald Trump than the Secretary of State is uh, of the United States. And so, uh, you know, I, I do think that we're seeing another round of sort of hollowing out of advisors and expertise. We aren't seeing people come in to to backfill those roles. And who can blame anyone, right? I mean, I I think it's remarkable that people lasted in those positions for as long as they did. And that even John Bolton is hopping on a plane to Mongolia rather than actually trying, you know, to to substantively push back. And so it it feels like business as usual. But I I actually think we're seeing sort of a a further round of degradation and and one that being met with a shrug, which is itself a sign of sort of how bad things are getting. It seemed
1: to me, too, that this was almost sort of we finally have distilled the administration down to its essence and maybe what the president wants, which is that he does want to be the one in charge. You know, you've got a national security advisor that runs nothing that bears any resemblance to a real interagency process. I mean, he might as well have been in Mongolia. He's not actually, to your point, Tammy, exerting any real influence over what the president Apparently is doing. I uh, maybe he doesn't want to. I mean, Ben, I wonder, though, it seems to me that this – it progressively increases the political risk to the president, whereas now he can be out there saying, like, look, I really am in charge. I'm making all of these decisions. If one of them goes wrong, I mean, is he credibly going to be able to blame someone else?
3: Well, he will certainly blame somebody else. And I mean, look, there is a problem. The core problem here is Trump. And he actually wants to make all these decisions impulsively and with no process. And If you are the president and you are dedicated to that for long enough that you get rid of all the staff that, you know, actually try to impose a certain amount of process on you, you can do that. In addition, there's a corollary related problem which has to do with Bolton. So Bolton is a guy who himself deeply doesn't believe in the interagency process. He believes in imposing his will on it. And so you have a series of agency processes, some of which may have real integrity on their own terms, but very little coordination between them. And then you have a president who ignores everything that goes on below him. So you have a a policy coordination process that doesn't take, actually doesn't care about the lower process, the processes beneath it, and you have a president who doesn't care about the NSC. And you put that together and you have sort of layers and layers of people ignoring each other. And what's left is Trump's whim. And in this case, it's, you know, he wants to go for a walk across the DMZ. So he tweets about it and that's (laughs) what happens.
2: I I think there's a technical term in international relations theory to explain this. It's called a (laughs) clusterfuck.
1: I think I read that in my international theory book. But it's it's remarkable how – I mean, I, again, I mean, I find myself asking this a number of times, particularly in this trip where, you know, does he really see how the rest of the world is reacting? And of course he does, right? I mean, you mentioned earlier you know, the the media reaction to this, and there's probably a lot to say. We could spend all of the podcast on, you know, the extent or the overextent to which people in my profession cover, you know, all of these whims and every moment of them. But he is, I mean, masterfully aware of how this is being portrayed. He constantly seeks – approval from the press, particularly some of the you know, higher organs like The Times and The Post, I guess, particularly The Times, even though he pretends we're fake news. I, I, I got to think, that as you said, this is very much engineered not just at his base, but for the countries that he's dealing with and their home audiences as well, where he has to know that his popularity rating is just, I mean, subterranean.
2: Right. And the question is, does that matter? Right? I mean, for some leaders of other governments where he's deeply unpopular, it might even help them um, make certain arguments at home. But I think that there are clear moments where the loss of American credibility makes a meaningful difference. I think there is clear evidence that it matters in certain specific cases, though. And one very recent one was the attribution of responsibility for the attacks on tankers in the Persian Gulf where, you know, CENTCOM and the U.S. military had video, they had other kinds of eyewitness evidence, and they were trying to make an international argument. The U.S. government was trying to make an argument that this was the responsibility of the Islamic Republic of Iran. And it almost didn't matter what facts or what photographs or what other material evidence was put forward, the level of skepticism in the international community, the unwillingness to be seen to take America's word. I think that's a real cost. And In that particular instance, um, because the president decided to back down on a military strike, it didn't have concrete consequences, but it easily could in the future. I mean, I think that is sort of the critical point. And
0: it's sort of amazing. We've reached this point without seeing the true crisis moment, the actual emergency in which we pay the cost here. And, uh, you know, that's the moment in which spending down all of this credibility is going to have tangible consequences for the United States. And so, you know, even critics of the Trump administration, I think you have have to cross your fingers and hope that that moment never comes, but but it is sort of this looming specter of, hey, what what about whenever there's like a real honest-to-God emergency where you need other people to believe you, you know, what's going to happen then exactly?
3: Yeah, so I agree with that, but I also think you're understating the price that we are seeing. It's just that because we see it in slow motion, people discount it to zero. Every time a country buys Huawei products for their fundamental infrastructure, you know, we're paying that price. Every time, you know, a country looks at the U.S. and says, uh, let's hedge a bet with our relationship with X country because these guys are unreliable, We're we're paying that price, and you see it a hundred times a month, but it's just not the something blowing up. And so every time you price it to zero, and and I agree with you, eventually there will be a crisis in which people don't rally to the side of the U.S. or think very hard about it. But I also think we're paying it in a, a gazillion paper cuts along the way. But on an, the
0: other hand, there's just so much winning. So.
3: <laughs> it's true. We're, we're tired you know, of all this winning and we're going to say, Mr. President, can you please stop the he winning? He did tell you that would happen. He did tell us that would happen. And
1: it may also, just to put a last kind of button on it, if it's not a crisis of the kind that you know, you're know you envisioning, Susan, it's also a point where things just get to an, an end state where it's almost absurd. I'm thinking of you know, negotiating with North Korea The North Koreans are giving up nothing in all of this and are getting so much in return. There's going to come a point where it's going to become – painfully obvious to everyone, as it I think is, frankly, to many people in the administration, that this country is never going to give up its nuclear weapons the way the president has said. And at some point, he's just going to be engaging in theatrics, and it's going to look like he's being played.
2: Well, it already looks like well, he's it already being played. Right,
1: well, it might become more obvious to
2: people. Right. You know, I, I think the administration is in the process of defining expectations down the same way they did with the Bahrain Middle East Peace Workshop. Yeah. So, you know, now if we can just keep them to building from it's building more bombs, it's a, it's a freeze. That's a win, and the fact that John Bolton from Mongolia decided to tweet uh, his denial of the news reports to that effect tell me just what and a gap there is between the national security advisor and the president on this issue, and and it also reveals, I think, what it means to have such a lack of process in national security decision making. But you know, when that crisis comes. Ivanka will step in. She'll take care of it.
3: Can I just say, I do think there is one really important positive foreign policy lesson to learn from Trump. And this is going to sound like a joke, but I actually mean it entirely seriously, which is that what Trump does is he announces he's being tough. And then if, in fact, he's engaged in something that looks like appeasement, people believe he's being tough anyway. And, you know, George H.W. Bush used to have this problem that his advisors would call reading the stage directions where he would tell you what he was going to do instead of doing it. And it was seen as bumbling. Trump reads the stage directions, but he does it on purpose. He says, like, now we're going to be tough. We're going to be really tough. We're going to be so tough. And then hundreds of millions of people actually confuse saying that with being tough and so I think the, the, there is actually a really important process point here, which is, you know, when your old grade school English teacher would say, when you're doing writing, show, don't tell. She was wrong. Tell. Don't show. <laughs> don't show.
1: Uh, John Bolton makes me think of other people who have disappeared. And that brings us to our second topic. <laughs>
0: dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Maybe he's in Mongolia.
1: Maybe Joseph Mifsud is in Mongolia. He is Good from a transition. <laughs> <laughs> wasn't my best, but you know. Uh, he is from a country that starts with an M. That would be Malta. Um, <laughs> my colleagues, Roz Helderman and Nyala Nakashima, and I uh, are out this week with a lengthy uh, investigative report. Um, this was
0: really made for you. There's something about this
2: story that's just is story, like Shane Harris top and, and, to bottom. Uh, European capitals. Oh, r- yeah. Glitzy conferences. Oh,
3: sure. Yeah. And,
2: and, of course, the
3: deep state conspiracy theory people preemptively this is true. tweeting that you're a terrible person. Yes. And, and <clears> this story <throat> should be ignored before they had any idea what was going to be in it.
1: And judging by the traffic and the number of contents, um, it was not ignored. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. Um, so this story centers on a Maltese professor or slash academic, and I would kind of maybe put those terms in a little bit in air quotes, uh, who is essentially...
2: an academic the way Ivanka is a senior White House official.
1: Sure. OK, we can work with that, um, who is essentially the the spark that lights the Mueller probe. It's It is... Joseph Mifsud, in a meeting back in 2016 with George Papadopoulos, the young foreign policy advisor, also in air quotes maybe, to Donald Trump, who says uh, that he has been uh, in Moscow and he's aware that the Russians have, quote, «dirt on Hillary Clinton in the forms of thousands of emails». And this conversation eventually through a sequence of people gets relayed back to the U.S. and ultimately to the FBI, which prompts the FBI to begin a counterintelligence probe. Um, So why did we spend weeks and weeks and 4,000 words of print on this, you might ask? Um, And the reason for it was that now that uh, we are in this mode of investigating the investigators – Uh, and the the Attorney General Barr review that's going on, a lot of attention among the sort of Trump-Russia skeptics, if we want to use that term politely, has focused on Joseph Mifsud and this counter-narrative has taken hold that he was clearly either working for the FBI or the CIA or British intelligence or possibly Italian intelligence, and that this meeting with Papadopoulos was a setup meant to create the pretext for the FBI to investigate uh donald trump and thereby launch onto the effort to so, derail his campaign. just as a point of
0: clarification because i it's hard to keep track it's a setup the, the conspiracy theory is that it's a setup by the fbi or cia
1: or the british or the italians or all of them working together
0: In, and the whole purpose of this is to mm. take down donald trump correct eventually when he gets elected president or and
3: before just so that you don't okay breathe easy the Attorney General of the United States believes this.
0: Well,
1: he believes there was spying on the campaign,
0: and
2: he just believes we should be looking into it, Ben. And there's he just nothing wrong questions. with spying. Spying could be legal. It's just spying. I'm it's spying on you
1: right English now. English word, as we've said many times on the podcast,
0: <laughs> I'm peeping you with my peepers. Um,
1: <laughs> um, so we've talked about about the investigation of these. <laughs> about Susan's beepers before. Uh, But the, the thrust of this story was like, okay, so if this is what the theory is becoming and if people are seizing on Joseph Mifsud as some kind of... Poisoned fruit, if you like, that would then you know torpedo the entire investigation. To mix my metaphors,
0: Um, (laughs) that is a seriously a poison fruit torpedo. If that's
1: what he is, (laughs) we thought let's look into this, and lo and behold, it finds out that there's basically zero evidence of that, but there's a lot of evidence to suggest that he has very strong connections to wait for it Russia. Uh, including uh, what was one of, I thought, the more telling pieces in the the center reporting, uh, which was that officials familiar with U.S. intelligence reports told us that there is actual U.S. intelligence reporting on Joseph Mifsud going back several years, indicating that he is suspected of working for Russia. Uh, And then a number of former CIA officers who worked in Russia saying – Look, I can't say for sure who he is, but he fits a profile of somebody that the Russians might employ to go to academic institutions and conferences and try and be a recruiter or get information or what might be called an agent of influence. So, you know, Ben, we've talked a lot about, you know, the the conspiracy theorists and the origins of the investigation um, and people have come up with a lot of information to suggest who Joseph Mifsud might be. Our reporting suggests that all disintegrates. Basically, it falls apart. There's no evidence of it. I'm not entirely convinced, though, that this will do anything to dissuade those people that he is not actually working secretly with the deep state or that there's some kind of, you know, corrupt fruit torpedo at the opening of this whole thing. I think people are going to believe what they want to believe.
3: I, I can assure you that it will not, uh, which is not to say it isn't, it isn't a thorough piece of uh, very serious reporting. But I don't think it is likely to change a lot of people's minds. And the reason is is that there is a great convenience to assuming that Joseph Mifsud is a plant of some sort and not what the FBI and then Robert Mueller alleged him to be, which was uh, sort of a cutout for or somebody with ties to Russian intelligence. Jim Comey has said bluntly that he was a Russian agent. Right. He wrote that Um, in the post. And the Office of Special Counsel, I forget the exact language that they used in the indictment, but they were prepared to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that he was somebody who was, you know, not casually approaching George Papadopoulos. And yet – and that is a pretty threatening thing to believe if what you're – essentially committed to is the idea that the Trump campaign was being targeted uh, by U.S. or allied intelligence services and that there was actually nothing untoward in the relationship or the outreach that they were getting from the Russians. Um, That is a fanciful hypothesis given all of the evidence that is on the table. It was a fanciful hypothesis two weeks ago two months ago and two years ago, Uh, and I can't imagine that uh, debunking the Mifsud part of the story will change a lot of people's minds. That said, it is a noble and worthy thing to do, and I think the major importance of this story, among other things, is that you guys spent as much time on it as as you did and could not actually locate Joseph Mifsud. And so I want to turn to a question on you, Shane, which is uh, not answered in the story, but I think is worth spending a little bit of time talking about, which is how confident are you that Joseph Mifsud is alive? And um, other than the word of this peculiar Swiss lawyer who uh, you guys talk to, who purports to represent his interests, what is the evidence one way or another as to his uh, location, well-being, and and uh, existence in, in the land of the living.
1: There's not a lot of evidence. Um, we made pretty significant efforts, um, both through our own contacts, as we were based here in Washington, but also our colleagues who reported from Rome to try and find Joseph Mifsud, who we talk about in the story, you know, the last time that he was seen, uh, it was a couple of years ago, uh, October of 2017. He's not serviced publicly since then when he gave a brief interview to La Repubblica, the Italian paper. Um, so I can't say I have no reason to believe he's dead. Um, but for whatever reason, he has certainly disappeared and gone out of uh, public view. I mean, we tried to contact him in, in ways that we know we've and have been successful in the past. And he's nowhere to be seen. I mean, you raise an interesting question here, which don't let me assume anything if I'm wrong. Which is that you know, if this is actually somebody who was, in fact, working on behalf of the Russian government, you now people who work on behalf of Russia who become inconvenient figures you know, have a way of disappearing. They have a history of that as well. I'm not suggesting that's what happened here. But the fact that we could not, and apparently no U.S. investigators. No, yeah,
0: apparently Robert Mueller couldn't, I couldn't locate him. Apart either. from the
1: one time they interviewed him briefly, which they allude to, in the report, and in fact, they say it was because George Papadopoulos had previously lied to the FBI that they were unable to challenge suit on his claims when they briefly interviewed him. I think it was in an airport, if I have that right. So he is gone, gone. And you know, if we can't find him, if the FBI can't find him, if congressional investigators can't find him, uh, either he does not want to be found – or someone doesn't want him to be found, and you know, we were careful how we phrased even this. The Swiss lawyer produced Stefan Roe, um, his account in the story, saying you know he has rep- he has claimed that he represents uh, Joseph Mifsud, but uh, all we have to go on there is his word and a document that he's shown us saying that he essentially has the power, the authority to speak on his behalf. But that's about all we know. Yeah.
3: So I, just to be clear, I was not suggesting that the Russians had offed him. Mm-hmm. I was merely uh, pointing out that. He's been really in the news for a long time. I mean, since more than a year ago now, a year and a half it's been. He's uh a subject of a great deal of interest. Uh and he is quite well hidden in a way that is actually difficult to be that well hidden in a in a media age right now, and given his previous ties to Russian intelligence uh, or alleged ties to Russian intelligence, that strikes me as raising questions about whether he is being protected somewhere, whether he is uh, not alive somewhere. You know, there are a lot of iterations of possibilities, or whether he has, at a personal level, the kind of tradecraft skills that allows you to disappear if you feel like it, which is, by the way, not a typical set of skills. I mean, do we have any expectation that, assuming Robert
0: Mueller does testify on July 17th, that this will be a line of questioning which Republican members seek to pursue, right? So, This is a conspiracy theory that Devin Nunes, among other people, have sort of helped to further without offering much evidence for the position. Um, Do you think he's going to – do you think Mueller's going to get grilled about this?
1: I would think that it's an obvious line of questioning for them to pursue. Maybe it'll be kind of jumbled in and lumped in with a lot of other suggestions. You you alluded to to Devin Nunes. He's been one of the leading proponents of this idea that there was some corrupt motive or intent or setup at the beginning – of the investigation, he's pointed to MIFSU particularly, so I wouldn't surprise me at all if Republicans bring him up or kind of allude to him in a in a sort of a, a general way. But what I can't imagine is that Bob Mueller is going to say more than Bob Mueller has already said. And frankly, even you know what he said, and I'll just read quickly here from the report is. You know, Mifsud, Quote had connections to Russia and maintained various Russian contacts, which is like less than what Jim Comey wrote in the Post, and sort of less than what we found, uh, suggesting that he has an intelligence connection. I mean, Bob Mueller certainly is aware of those reports that we that we cite. So I'm not exactly sure why you know he didn't go farther in this. I mean, it, it's always struck me as possible that the investigators thought you know, this is just sort of an – this is the point at which things begin and that's the inception of it and we move forward from there and maybe never thought that people would try and, you know, rewind the tape all the way back to the beginning and suggest this. And I also wonder too if people – like to give some credit to people who I think are – Not conspiracy theorists, but are actually good faith skeptics about the Trump-Russia probe. Many people have sort of equated the Mifsud Papadopoulos reaction with this guy Stefan Halper, who is the professor in England who has acted as an FBI informant and on some occasions was asked to brush up against people in the Trump world. Meaning
0: they're getting the two confused.
1: They're getting too confused or they're assuming that, like, well, if the FBI the asked a guy named thing. Steph Halpert yeah. to brush up against someone in a campaign to find out what they know, why wouldn't you use a guy like Joseph Mifsud to plant the seed to, uh, of Russian dirt and to entrap the Trump campaign into taking that bait and then getting them involved in a conspiracy? I mean, that's entrapment and also that's not how we run intelligence operatives. But that's where I think some people are getting these ideas and in, in some cases even the people confused. We actually had some one person email us and say – you know, oh, I can remember when people were crying about exposing Joseph Mifsud because he was an intelligence source. And I had to write back and say, no, you're confusing.
2: (laughs) But I think that this is one of those where it's clear that Mueller couldn't pin down exactly who this guy is, where he is, or what his role is. And it's clear that those who are interested in defending the president and those around him at all costs have every every interest in maintaining the ambiguity around this guy and whoever it is that's responsible for his um disappearance whether it's you know the russians or something uh or it's just him himself it's furthering those who want his fate to be ambiguous his role to be ambiguous his i uh, you know His identity and who he was working for to be ambiguous. And all of this is with the goal of just throwing dust in the air. And that's what Kevin Nunes is going to be doing. Devin, Devin, that's what Devin, Devin you called him the wrong name. It's the (laughs) ultimate burn. But I just like to say that, you know, I have a pretty distinct um, guess as to where Joseph Mifsud is. Where is he? He is hanging out with Ivanka (gasps) and she's convincing him. To come forward and tell his story and at the right time, he will. He'll do
3: it. There is another piece of evidence that Mifsud had a significant relationship of some kind with the Russians, and that is that he did tell George Papadopoulos <laughs> right. that the Russians had <laughs> thousands of before, anyone, Kirk, else before knew, anyone else knew. Before anyone else knew, before of the, the DNC had had uh, announced the, uh, you know, the hack before uh, the U.S. assessment. And so, just at a sort of well, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, level that's a heck of a guess. If you it's know? not, if it's not informed by
1: something. I mean, unless he's like Miss Cleo and he's a kind of clairvoyant.
0: <laughs> oh, as if you've never accidentally predicted a major intelligence operation in a casual conversation with someone you don't know. You've done that, right? It happens all the time. Stop all the time.
1: clock theory, baby. Oh, uh, let's see. Well, I was thinking maybe Joseph Mifsud would want a job at McKinsey Consulting. Um, but it apparently is not necessarily the most hopping place to work these days. Um, there's a report out today in Politico by Natasha Bertrand and Daniel Lipman saying – I'm going to read from the lead here. America's vast spying apparatus was built around a cold war of dead drops and double agents. Today that world is fractured and migrated online with hackers, rogue terrorist cells, leaving intelligence operatives scrambling to keep up. So intelligence agencies did what countless other government offices have done, and that's true. They brought in a consultant. For the past four years, the powerhouse firm McKinsey & Company has helped restructure the country's spying bureaucracy – Aiming to improve response time and communication. Instead, according to nearly a dozen current and former officials who either witnessed the restructuring firsthand or are familiar with the project, the multimillion dollar overhaul has left many within the country's intelligence agencies demoralized and less effective. So, Susan, we've heard these kinds of stories before consulting firms brought in to reorganize and streamline and make government more business-like. Um, and we've heard countless stories of those. Uh, enterprises going awry and making things more convoluted and less efficient than they were to begin with. It appears that the intelligence community is not immune from this. Um, you've had some, you know, experience. You were at NSA before they began a big reorg there. Can you talk to us about the findings of this story and going to help us understand too. When a company like McKinsey comes into an intelligence agency, you know, what is it trying to do? What is it trying to correct and improve?
0: Yeah, so um, it's always interesting to see inside stories spilling out into the public, right? And you always have to sort of ask why now. Um, there has been a lot of discontent, um, at least at NSA about the NSA twenty-one reorganization. So look, NSA found itself in the position that lots of intelligence agencies, including the CIA and others, have, which is that. In a changing operational landscape, a changing legal landscape, a changing resource landscape. Remember, um, at least the DoD-facing agencies um, have also been subject to sequestration over a period of years. Um, huge brain drain and talent loss into the tech sector. Um, uh, sort of resurgent adversaries with Russia, you know, China, uh, other places, and so you know they're looking how to become more nimble and agile and learn the lessons that all big giant organizations um, are trying to sort of modernize and, and capture capitalize into the future. Everybody hates reorganizations. Everybody has hated every reorganization in the history of the U.S. intelligence community and in federal agencies in general. I, don't, I actually don't think that's an overstatement. Um, these are always painful events, in part because there's been a lot of bad reorganizations. And in the case of NSA, and it sounds like CIA as well, um, you know, there's some evidence that there's objectively there was some bad decisions and, and that there are elements of the reorg that actually aren't furthering sort of the operational goals for which they were intended. There's also parts of reorganizations that people hate because reorgs tend to unearth internal pathologies. And, you know, these are cutting edge, you know, sort of the the universe's greatest intelligence agencies. They're also entrenched, massive bureaucracies. And so one thing that happens whenever you take a really close look at organizational structures and how to capitalize on talent is, groups of people are asked to justify what they do all day and how they do it and why they do it that way. And if there's a better way and you have people who maybe don't report to anybody who now are going to be reporting to a lot of people. And so there's a part of all criticisms of reorganizations in general that is also born out of, you know, internal discomfort that isn't necessarily unhealthy. And so when we see stories like this, It's always challenging to sort of um, untangle the various bits, right? There's obviously uh, an element here of genuine operational constraint and sort of real frustration that we're seeing come out of CIA and NSA that this isn't working, that they don't feel like they're sort of up to the task. There's obviously an element that is that kind of bureaucratic discomfort. We don't like change. We don't like being told that we're going to change. There's also an element of scapegoating, right? That these – your big fancy consultants, you had no idea what was going on and we told you this was going to mess everything up. And now that we've implemented your systems, well, everything that goes wrong, we can point to this to this consulting company. And that's um, – I'm certainly not here to, to defend McKinsey and I, I don't particularly have a, a horse in the race. I was going to say horse in the fight just to keep the, um, the, the main metaphors going. <laughs> <laughs> a fruity torpedo horse. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, Yuck. I don't have a dog in the fight here on you know and feel any particular loyalty to NSA 21 in terms of whether it was a good idea or a bad idea. Heresy. Um, you know, or, or to especially not to McKinsey. Um, but, but I do think that as we read this, these stories, you know, it, it's these are entrenched cultures. They're really mm-hmm. hard to change. Um, they're cultures that need to be changed, right? The idea that everything was going perfectly before and that you didn't need sort of to really change the direction of the ship. I, I don't know that that's accurate. And so then the question, the framing of everything was fine in the good old days, but this isn't working. That strikes me as wrong. The question was, well, there were some problems. Maybe this wasn't the right way to sort of keep moving forward or, or to, to sort of chart the course in the future. But, you know, that, that doesn't mean going back to the way things were that, that suddenly that was all perfect.
2: You know, I, I think there's often a joke about Management consulting companies is that they are hired and brought in by an organization's leadership to tell the organization what it already knows it has to do. But because you pay for it and it comes from outside and it has, you know, some data analysis, it has more authority and it makes it easier for leaders to make changes that they wanted to make anyway. I think that's one reason why there's often a bureaucratic kind of backlash against management consultants and why they these kinds of leaks happen about, you know, they're wasting money or they're screwing everything up. But I think the other point is that, of course, you're right, Susan, that uh, there are organizations and perhaps especially government organizations that have been running for a long time on, you know, our necessity is so obvious that we don't have to make the case for ourselves or for our budget and that that they need to be shaken up. I guess I would say two things. Um, One, you know, and I don't know how relevant these are to NSA, but I do think they're relevant to government reorganizations in general. Um, One is that the theory of a reorganization is that you can fix what's broken through changing process and changing structure. But if what's broken is culture, as you seemed to be suggesting, process and structure can't overcome culture. Leadership can work to overcome culture. But really, the population within a bureaucracy have to change their culture if they are ready and they have to feel a necessity to do that. No management consultant is going to be able to do that. And so to the extent that, you know, the IC in general or organizations tasked with protecting um, the United States, in the wake of 9/11, you know, had this attitude of like throw it all against against the problem, do whatever it takes, be creative. You know, if you need more budget, tell me. If you need more capabilities, let's do whatever whatever we have to do. That's not sustainable. You, that's not a sustainable battle rhythm, and and it's also not sustainable, kind of, to all the external constituencies. And so, at some point, there's gonna be pressure to reorganize and and there's value to organizing yourself into a form that can sustain a battle rhythm over time. Um, But the other point I think about government reorganizations, although this is probably true in corporate reorganizations as well, is the leadership that orders them almost always has in mind that they can save money, that they can identify redundancies, reduce personnel, streamline efficiencies and ring efficiencies out of the system. And, you know, the Tillerson interview with the House committee that was released last week, he talks about the State Department reorganization. And he says what prompted it for him was realizing that They'd gone on a hiring spree, and they'd had a budget increase over five years and he just didn't understand why um which is you know an amazing uh, lack of historical context, but if reorganizations are always about saving money, then bureaucracies are always going to resist them i I think there's an element of truth of that to, to clarify i don't I don't mean to say that
0: nsa's culture is the part that's broken i, I would say sort of fair to say specifically nsa's culture is a culture that makes Big change, difficult, and so it's something that's going to need to be grappled with, and and you can't just sort of put a reorg on top. Um, Although I I think it's about more than just saving money, although of course that's always sort of a goal here, and that's that um, you know these are intelligence, um, the intelligence community is once again redefining itself and, and redefining the threat. Right, these are agencies that. Organize themselves to combat the Cold War, right? And then they had sort of, uh, you know, uh, shortly before 9-11, sort of an identity crisis of what exactly are we doing here? Then we saw them reorganize themselves to respond to the global war on terror and and the threat from Al-Qaeda. Now we're seeing the intelligence agencies find themselves in a, in a new world in which they've organized themselves to combat a very, very specific type of threat, and their adversaries are playing a different kind of game. And so, yes, it's it's certainly about bureaucracy and money and processes, but but I also think it's about that sort of key identity definition, and, and those are always really painful moments of transitions for these places.
3: I just want to tell a very quick story about a government reorganization. Uh, that happened a long, long time ago. Uh, So once upon a time, there were a lot of agencies of the federal government, and they each had their own lawyers. And those own lawyers could, could litigate for the United States, but they didn't have enough time or energy or money. And so they hired outside counsel to represent the United States all over the country. And this got expensive. And Meanwhile, the poor attorney general didn't have control over all these lawyers who were representing the United States. And so what they did is they had a government reorganization. And uh, the other day, found by the estimable Michaela Fogel, I found myself reading a speech by a representative arguing for a reorg. And he's like, we got to get, get rid of all these outside counsels and all these lawyers who work for the government around the country should all be reporting to the attorney general. So pass my bill. Pass my reorg. And that's how the Justice Department came to be created in 1870.
0: Wow. Dun, 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 dun. Read our book on making the presidency. Out <laughs> January 21st.
3: Thanks, Mackenzie.
1: oh well uh let's move on to object lessons uh ben you have an object
3: so i the other day i went on a twitter thread about how i was never going to tweet material of unknown provenance again and now i'm going to violate that because today i saw something awesome and i don't think it's possible that it could be disinformation but it may be nonsense and bullshit um. So Julia Yaffe shared this, and it's about Russia, so I'm going to consider that authoritative or not. It is a marriage proposal, uh, Russian mob style.
0: Spoiler alert.
3: <laughs> um, so this poor woman uh, is driving with her, I, I suppose, boyfriend, and armed bandits in camo gear with machine guns pull out in front of the car, force them out of the car at gunpoint, push them down on the hood of the car and then produce to the captive male a package, which he opens, pulls out a ring, hands to her, and then one of the bandits gives them flowers and they all applaud. And it is the most uh, offensive (laughs) proposal I could imagine. Um, And she actually uh, just seems okay with it, which is... Uh, Really upsetting. So to everybody out there who's thinking of proposing to your uh, fiancé, don't do it like that. And to everyone out there whose fiancé proposes at gunpoint with armed camo-wearing machine gun like Russian mobsters, you don't want to marry that guy.
1: Yeah. Unless you're Russian, I guess. Um, My object – This is a statement issued yesterday by the White House press secretary after Iran announced that it had breached the uh, stockpile limits of nuclear fuel it is allowed to have under the uh, Iran nuclear deal.
2: It's the new incoherence of the new press secretary. This
1: is good. This is really good. Um, so the, the the statement begins pretty, you know, as you would expect. The Iranian regime took action today to increase its uranium enrichment. Is It was a mistake under the Iran nuclear deal to allow Iran to enrich uranium at any level. And here's the winner. There is little doubt that even before the deal's existence, Iran was violating its terms. Did you catch that? Yeah. 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 So apparently, in Iran, time is a flat circle. <laughs> the White House is. In the White
2: House, time is a flat okay. circle.
1: Even before the deal's existence, Iran was violating its okay. Now, I know what you mean to say there. However,. <laughs>
2: Sure. Right? I think I think know right. what you so mean. So they were doing bad things. That's why there was a deal. Well, there's that so too. To stop <laughs> them from <laughs> I doing those not things. not
0: to defend <laughs> any element of the administration. But I think what they're saying is they were never complying with the terms which the deal was premised on. Right? It was always a lie. And the things the United Susan, States Susan, you believed. should have proofread
1: this.
3: <laughs>
0: Not, <laughs> I agree. There's a lack of clarity, but
3: it goes well with Joe Biden's uh, statement that his at the debate that his first act as president would be, top priority would be defeating Donald Trump.
1: Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, maybe that's who wrote this statement for. Uh, Susan, what's your object?
0: So my object lesson is the Fourth of July, and not just any Fourth of July, but the Fourth of July in Washington D.C. We are all the people's swamp party dwellers of this miserably hot city. Um, but you know, the Fourth of July in DC is really a um, a very special thing. Um, it is something that really does transcend politics and, and is a nice moment of national unity and sort of celebration of uh, of American values and. <clears throat> I know we have bigger fish to fry um, in this administration and its many degradation,s um, but the special VIP area at the Fourth of July is such a bummer to me. And so, rather than being excluded from the front of the Lincoln Memorial, which doesn't even make sense for right, like Marian
2: Anderson saying there, you know, inclusion has taken place there. Martin Luther King spoke there. Right?
0: Like, making the 4th of July a weird political rally is such a weird slap in
2: the face. And anyway,
0: I am going to be thinking about how to spend the 4th of July uh, maybe recapturing some piece of that uh, original Washington magic. I don't know.
2: You can go to oh, the fun neighborhood parade in yeah, the Palisades. Yeah.
1: Put streamers on. Um, yeah. Anyway, I would Dress encourage everyone
0: else to do the same. And um, just because they are doing something gross with the holiday doesn't mean we have to join them. We'll have our own 4th of July
2: celebration, guys.
1: Recapture the spirit of 76. Absolutely. Uh, Tammy, what's your object?
2: Okay. So my object is a video uh, of an event that was completed just before I walked over here to the studio to record Rational Security. Uh, We uh, at Brookings hosted today Agnes Calamard, the Special Rapporteur for Extrajudicial Killings, of the UN Human Rights Council. And she came to Brookings to speak about the report she concluded and released uh, a couple of weeks ago on the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. She produced a report that is incredible in its care and detail and nuance. Um, it is also chilling in the facts that it discloses. And I think Dr. Calamard was... Wise and passionate in her recommendations and in her insistence uh, at the end of her remarks that what really mattered is that the people in the room at the event would not allow their governments to forget about what happened and would continue to insist on accountability. Yeah,
1: And it was a great interview, by the way. I was there. Um, And that brings us to the end of the podcast, you guys. Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page at lawfareblog.com. You can buy um, Rational Security logos imprinted on American flags, um, sparklers that spell out Rational Security.
2: And fireworks. Um, fireworks, yeah.
1: exactly. Cakes, red, white, and blue cakes with rational security on them at dot com. right, Ben?
2: Something like that.
1: Something like that. You can follow us on Twitter at RATLsecurity. You can find us on Facebook. Whenever you download the podcast, please leave us a nice rating and review. It's really helping others find the show, and we appreciate it. Uh, Our audio engineer this week was Michaela Fogel. The show is produced by Jen Patia Howell. Music this week by Ivanka Trump and her surprisingly cheerful rendition of the Alanis Morissette single, Uninvited.
2: (laughs) Oh, nice. I like she would nice. do like
1: a cheery version, wouldn't it? Yeah. You're not allowed. <laughs> You're uninvited. <laughs> Hands. Hands. <laughs> and hair. <laughs> <laughs> Unlike Just Sophia, Yann, wildly. who is always invited. Exactly. Oh yeah, it the stage direction on Ivanka's script.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Don't uh, worry, honey, it's all about confidence. Oh,
1: on behalf of my good friends Tamarkoff and Wittis, Winnes, Ben Winnison, Susan Hennessy, we'll see you next week and have a great fourth of July, everybody. Bye bye.